This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for episode 93 of the podcast. Today I'll be talking with Gang Wang, assistant professor in the Department of Computer Science, University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. All scientists are authors, but not all authors are scientists. Accordingly, authorship is not defined by science, a fact that will hardly surprise anyone who appreciates fiction or who follows news in print. However, it is also a fact that there is something about authorship that does define science, and this fact may well cause surprise, and probably the biggest surprise amongst the scientists themselves. The majority of scientists, it is my guess, will view themselves as seekers of basic knowledge, and as researchers toward applied uses for such knowledge. A well-designed survey of scientists would return, I believe, a percentage considerably above the 50 mark who do not put authorship or paper writing or communication of any kind in the defining clauses of their job descriptions as scientists. It seems far more likely to me that most scientists, when asked what it is that makes them scientists, are going to answer such things as these. Expert knowledge, insatiable curiosity for the subject matter, the indomitable will to help improve our lives, measurement-based and deductively driven reasoning, an evidence-based and numbers-formulated view of the world, information gathering at the very edge of some field, leadership and mentoring at the group and institute levels, peer reviewing and publications editing, conference attendance, collaboration across disciplinary and institute and country boundaries, hard study of and daily updating in the literature, a striving for commitment and dedication and scrupulousness, and a striving for clarity and precision and simplicity in thinking. I'm sure I've missed a few. My listeners will know I am not a scientist myself, just someone who works close by scientists. Nonetheless, the likelihood that very many scientists would answer back to the question, what makes you a scientist? Something like my authorship, or my publishing record, or even the plain and straightforward, my writing. Well, that to me seems near to impossible. 
Therefore, I say it will surprise many a scientist out there to hear that their scientific labor is also defined by their work as authors. Because, in my imaginary survey that I have not conducted, even those scientists who might have replied that indeed paper writing makes a large part of what they do each day, even those scientists will not recognize just how definitive their authorship is to their being a scientist. You see, it is my estimate that these scientists will certainly notice the writing. They'll no doubt acknowledge just how much depends on their writing skills. However, these scientists will continue defining themselves as experts and specialists, as developers of methodologies and coordinators of the team effort. They will not, though, call themselves authors. That is, they won't unless that noun author is immediately followed by the little linking word of, as in, I'm the author of that paper or as in, I'm co-author of 83 papers to date, or something of the sort. The point I'm drawing here is that, although the author who every scientist is does get noticed, this being an author tends to go unrecognized. What I mean is, sure, papers are being published and scientists' names are being listed beneath the titles, but really, all that is just research outcomes. These papers and publications are reports of the research and derive their value purely and solely from the research. The thing being engaged in here by the scientists is not, by the perception of those scientists themselves, the writing per se. It is research by other means, research by text, but it is not a practice of writing that they pursue. And that's fine. I mean, of course it is. Why shouldn't it be? It's certainly one way of seeing the part that writing has in research. And by my rendition of that perception here, it's actually a perception which shows just how integral the writing of the research truly is to the researching itself. The writing is not text work, no. It is the research as the research is conducted at the conclusion of a project or even in the middle of a project or the inception of the project so that the thinking gets clarified. And so this writing is continuous with the work in the lab or wherever the scientist produces his or her science. So that in itself is interesting, and it is good. But I want to plead here for a different perception, for the other view, if you will, the view that shows not the continuity, but the break. In this view here, the scientist may be a methodologist and an expert, but beside these parts in the research, the scientist is too an author. This view shows how the scientist performs very many tasks, the one task aside the other, so that we see the scientist doing more than merely writing papers and notes and drafts and all the rest of it, but instead recognize just how all that writing becomes the labor of any author. Handling text, turning words around, outlining and sketching and writing and revising, all that belongs in the job description of any author at all, and so too it belongs in the job description of any scientist. The perspective I'm asking you to entertain for this brief moment is the perspective which allows this to appear. The research is performed by scientists, and... The performance demands many parts. Thinker, collaborator, knower, mentor, doubter. Well, add the part of author, or if you please, the part just of writer. And then I've made my point. Scientists don't just write their research. Scientists are writers, no matter what they're writing about. 
The part of writer helps define who they are professionally, and the act, that is, the writing they do, helps define what they do professionally, that is, the research. So, all of that is one long way of saying that my guest today is a writer. Gang Wang is a computer scientist. He researches to make it easier to build explainable and robust data-driven solutions to safeguard internet systems and to augment our ability to perform security-related tasks. Gang's recent projects focus on the security of social computing systems, cybercrime, adversarial machine learning, and machine learning explanation. Gang's work regularly appears at the top-tier security conferences, and Gang himself regularly serves there on the technical program committees. Gang is a scientist of machine learning and computer security, and therefore Gang is a writer of machine learning and computer security. So, let's begin today's episode, Gang Wang and machine learning and computer security. Hi Gang, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Well, thank you for having me. Um, your publication record is impactful. We know that. You yourself have served on the committees, as I've just said, of major conferences in your research community. Your work has even reached broader publics, for example, through the New York Times. You have a lot to tell your peers, as well as early career researchers in the fields of computer security and machine learning. So how would you describe, let's say, to begin with you yourself, your path to your current point in the research? Or more specifically, tell us a bit about yourself, your education, your mentality and mindset, perhaps even your personality, which have led you to becoming the security researcher that you are today. Uh, yeah, so uh, that's also that's a very interesting question. Uh, so uh, I started actually <clears throat> my training as a electronic engineering, uh, so I work more on the lower end, uh, so design circuits, right? Uh, as an undergrad student, uh, so what got me interested in uh, computer security and computer networking in general was when I took a undergrad class in networking and security, and I feel immediately interested in that particular field. Uh, that's why when I, you know, apply for the PhD program. I instead applied to computer science and uh, work on that related topics. Um, so I think what drive me into academia uh, was primarily because uh, there are uh, so many questions I have uh, when I was studying a particular topic, and this kind of a curiosity and uh, always, uh, you know, uh, kind of a drive me to think about. Uh, problem that I wanted to work on. And at the end of the day, right, by the time I graduate, I kind of find that there's too many problems I want to work on. And that does not kind of work well if I join a company, uh, I work on my, you know, engineering job. Uh, so researcher become a no brainer to me uh, to work on those problems uh, that I have been always curious about. Uh, you know, that's kind of leads to where I am today, which is, uh, I could, uh, work on the problem I'm super interested in, try to find out the answers, try to find out the solutions. That's really interesting because that brings up um, in research and also in the, um, let's say, the move between academia and industry, that central question of applied and basic. And mm -hmm. if I'm hearing you right, it is really the, the basic side 
in its open questions and its in its endless search for for you know the the new information that that has driven you into uh, the area that you now are working in. Yeah, that is accurate. Um, I think part of the uh, so so uh, to clarify, right? So my work has definitely a major part has the applied side of the 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 flavor of the work. Uh, that being said. Uh, uh, the differences between uh, academia and industry is mostly the flexibility to pursue the question that you are interested in. Uh, kind of enjoy the flexibility to define the problem uh, and be able to work with the problem. Uh, at the same time, I work with industry uh, collaborators a lot, and that's a great you know opportunity to uh, you know build a research prototype and see how it works in practice. Uh, however, I'm not a binded uh, to take that all the way to production to you know build a product or to to you know have a company. So I have collaborators from the industry to uh, to carry on with that task. I can keep just doing what I'm you know good at what I'm doing well. And that brings me then right into the areas that you're doing well and that you're good at, machine learning and computer security and let's say its, its broadest uh, sense. Um, for listeners, perhaps also especially for listeners who uh, their expertise in computer science matches mine, which means, yeah, we can download an app or we understand how to use our cloud space. But after that, <laughs> things get a bit sketchy. Um, would it be possible that you told us um, a bit about your focuses in security and machine learning? Um, you have, uh, ahead of this interview, also named some of your papers uh, for me that you consider to be central, central to your work. And there I notice such keywords showing up as usability and effectiveness of ML tools, as I've mentioned also in the um, introduction. Also, explainability, which seems to be another one of the major uh, topics uh, that you cover. Would there be in any sort of a broad brushstroke kind of way that you could introduce us to your research and perhaps also with a view to the applied side that you were mentioning, you still keep in mind always? Yes, absolutely. Um, so so computer security uh, is pretty broad, right? So the, the aspects I'm working on, focusing on are, uh, think about a large, you know, organization network where there are... Uh, you know, thousands of thousands of computers, you know, millions of moving parts in terms of files and processes. Um, and uh, there are all different ways to break into the system, to steal people's data, to cause disruption, right? So uh, the focus I have is to look at this complex system and build defenses. Uh, now, machine learning is just one of the many different toolkits uh, that is useful to uh, provide the defense that is scalable and, uh, you know, uh, and reliable. Uh, so uh, by that means that because of the complexity of the system, uh, there are so many moving parts, things are changing constantly, uh, it's impossible for, you know, human, uh, our security analysts, the security teams, to manually analyze everything. Uh, so therefore, machine learning provides a nice way to offer um, automation, right? So you can automate some part of the job. Uh, so there are, uh, you know, algorithms that regularly monitor the networks, right? There are algorithms that analyze the system logs to find out, you know, what's going wrong, right? So are there any kind of intrusion happening 
on the network in the system. So that's kind of the a high level theme that I'm working on. Now, in terms of the specific, you know, uh, you know, kind of challenges in, in this uh, in this problem space. Now, I think you mentioned about explainability, right? So uh, even in uh, you know the machine learning community, explain explainability is a really important topic because uh, machine learning, while it is very powerful, it's really hard to understand uh, the decision-making process. Uh, so uh, for security analysts that worked on, that worked with a machine learning model to collectively uh, or collaboratively provide a security defense, it would kind of require the human to be able to interact and understand uh, the machine learning model's behavior and their decision-making process. So that's where uh, I've uh, spent quite a bit of time uh, to investigate the human machine learner, uh, learning interfacing, uh, try to provide a way for both parties to understand each other and be able to work with each other. Th- this uh, idea that you're talking about right there has been one that's fascinated me the more time I've spent uh, collaborating with um, computer scientists. As my listeners will know, I help uh, scientists write and communicate better, and I happen to be working at the moment very closely with computer scientists. And this is particularly one of those areas that has fascinated me, and it comes out in your paper, um, one of the ones you provided for me, Lemna, explaining deep learning-based uh, security applications. And, and there's just this one or two lines in the introduction that uh, for the listener's sake, I think is worth reading. I quote, the network once trained with massive data sets can provide a high classification accuracy. However, the high complexity of the network also leads to low interpretability of the model. It is very difficult to understand how deep neural networks make certain decisions, which seems to be summing up much of what you've just said here. And uh, again, that's what fascinates me because it's, one of these interesting things in, in computer science that essentially this problem of explainability is in a man-made medium in the digital world, which has apparently now exceeded our own understandings, its creators, a bit like a Frankenstein's monster, if you like. Now, the Frankenstein's monster image is, is wrong in the sense that AI is bad. I'm not trying to paint it as a monster, but I mean, just this idea that a creation of ourselves can then become something that we'll need to study. Whereas in very many other sciences, biology, to take just a sort of random example, it's nature itself that we're trying to understand. In the case of computer science, we've brought ourselves to the point where we're trying to understand what it is that we've made possible. That That is very good point. Uh, so indeed, right? So uh, deep neural networks uh, is very effective on many different tasks. Now, uh, in computer vision, in natural language processing, uh, there are already some work that shows that you can explain some part of that decision-making process by visualizing, you know, part of the picture, you know, some portion of the pixels, or highlight highlighting certain keywords or a combination of keywords that kind of correlate to the decision-making with some of the things you can observe and, and, and interpret. Uh, things getting more challenging when it goes to the security domain, where when you're highlighting certain features, when you kind of, uh, you know, uh, associate the decision with some of the uh, properties of the instance, uh, it's not immediately interpretable. The reason is that, you know, uh, you know, reasoning and understanding is beyond a simple, you know, statistical correlation, right? So we all know that 
correlation is not necessarily causation, causation, right? Causality. Um, so it almost feel like that, you know, right now uh, we are creating something really powerful and we don't fully understand the inner mechanism of how it works. But at the same time, uh, we're exploring alternatives that can provide equally powerful functionality, but it's more explainable, right? So there's interesting directions along this line to find an alter- alternative of you know, deep neural networks uh, by incorporate, you know, symbolics, right? Symbols, right? Logics, uh, those kind of uh, tools that humans are very familiar with and try to interface in this kind of two world. Uh, I think this is a really fascinating research area uh, in terms of, you know, how this kind of translating to application uh, it's, you know, yet to be seen. But I think at the end of the day, when human work with some powerful algorithm, the demand explainability. So I think that's a necessary part, uh, one way or another. Yeah, and this this brings me to one of the other sort of high level points in 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 the area of computer uh, security that has always interested me. Um, this idea that, as you're saying, with the human interface or the applied area, um, it. It it obviously is still going to demand research, as as you said in 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 the beginning um, when you introduced a bit of your background. Demand research that is basic in its approach, that is you know capable of decoupling itself from the industry and and just pursuing the questions to understand things. But it would seem to me, and I would very much be happy happy to hear t- uh, your your opinion on this. It would seem to me that it is the potentially safety critical areas of the security applications. So essentially almost a 100% applied view that makes it then in the end that the basic research must be at its best. I mean, Mm. it's, if you, if you get my point, it's almost ironic that it's because of the security application, which is hundred percent applied, the demands on the basic research become their highest. So that's, that's also a very good point. Uh, This is actually one of the reason uh so i you know interact with our industry partners uh, so much uh, because this this is where the problems are coming from uh and they have real problems and their problem help you to define your research problem more accurately i think this is a you know uh, you can you can think of that as a sort of a reality check uh you can you know uh study an abstract problem uh, any way you wanted, right? But at the end of the day, it's uh, it's also very desirable, at least from my personal interest, to ground that abstraction with reality and constantly check on it. Uh, now, this is a you know part of the reason uh, that security is is relevant here is that uh, attackers are constantly changing; uh, they were adapting. So uh, the, the interesting part is that this is a naturally a adversarial environment, right? For a machine learning model, for a high-stake model to survive in an adversarial environments where attackers would actively try to uh, disrupt you, try to destroy you. Now that puts uh, the requirements for the model in terms of robustness, in terms of reliability, uh, at, at a much higher level, right? So that's kind of redefine the problem, right? So maybe, you know, you say, I can get 99% accuracy, and I'm happy with that. 
However, when you put this kind of model in this kind of environments, you probably okay with 98% accuracy, but you want 99% reliability and robustness, right? That's kind of the actual property you need to work on in order to you know, make this model ever uh, usable. Yeah, and uh, that's... Uh... Again, one of those fascinating things about this particular field inside of computer science. I mean, computer science, as, as anyone will know, is, is, is a very broad field. But when you deal with security or when you deal with, let's say, machine learning in relation to computer security, and there itself, it's also an interesting perhaps mix, which uh, you could uh, enlighten us on as to the differences between, say, machine learning for computer security or security of machine learning. Um, but just to give a more broader context to uh, the issue that I'm trying to broach here, I'm interested as in the special challenges which you've been formulating somewhat already for us or the special contributions that you see in the field of computer security as perhaps opposed to its neighboring fields in computer science or even further abroad in the sciences? Um, so uh, let me try to uh, answer uh, the question based on my understanding. Um, so I, I feel like that, you know, if you look at the general uh, machine learning and data mining, right? So uh, there are certain properties that people are optimizing uh, for, uh, either is accuracy, adaptability, and, and, and other uh, possible properties. Now, computer security... Uh, as a sort of application area of those uh, those uh, those models or methodology, uh, essentially inspire uh, new challenges, right? So uh, there uh, there is ultra complexity, right? That's one thing. With once you know a small model scale to a network with millions of components, right? How to com- handle this complexity while maintaining the same performance? That's kind of the challenging. That's the uh, you know, uh, complexity part. Then there's a higher level of uncertainty, meaning that, uh, you know, the data is highly dynamic, right? Things are constantly changing uh, and the uh, sort of data distribution is evolving over time. Now, this kind of a level of concept drift is probably very different in other domains, in other application domains. Uh, and then this uh, this adversarial nature we you know just discussed uh, is put another uh, you know level of challenge there. And uh, finally, you know uh, because for security we often don't fully trust automation, uh, so there's always need a human involved. Uh, so the human needs to either make the you know automated decision or together with the model to make the decision. So the, you know, human computer interaction elements is also relevant. Uh, so you can, you can see that so the problem is pretty exciting with all the different extra properties that you need to deal with and solving any of the problems is not easy. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, you know, once you solve some part of the problem, uh, you could make a really good progress towards the, towards the solution space. I, su- I suppose the interesting thing for an outsider in, in what you're saying there is is the interaction between the formal and, and the human uh, 
um, mm. in a realm where very many people might not have expected the importance of uh, human interaction. I mean, if you think of uh, the adversarial possibilities or e- the interpretable possibilities, so it could even be a benign actor in that case. Um, but what you're saying right now as well, just uh, simply that uh, this idea of the concept drift, which you've mentioned, is going to be greater because of users, even perhaps in the area of, of um, you know, interaction with, let's say, computers. Yeah, so this is actually a, one of the problem we're currently working on. Um, so, uh, well, the notion of concept drift is, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, especially from a machine learning perspective, is that when your model is trained on, you know, one data set, you know, after a while, right, the data become uh, different, right? So the decision boundary for a machine learning model change. So your older model will no longer work well on this new data, right? That's pretty, uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, so in, you know, in computer security, in particular, the scenario we're, you know, we're, we're looking at, uh, you know, given an organization network, um, the network contains servers. Also, the servers are used by people. Now, this kind of human elements is, is a big headache um, because human behaviors is less predictable compared to, uh, you know, scheduled machine uh, tasks, right? So if a server has some scheduled tasks, it's more predictable, the patterns are more stable, so the model can survive for a longer time without retraining. But humans, you know, come and go, their behavior changes, they change teams, and they change tasks. Now, because of these kind of high, uh, highly dynamic behavior changes of human, uh, and this whole model becomes less stable, and you have to constantly, you know, catch up with the so-called concept drift. Um, so we're basically working with a large network to measure this kind of uh, benign drift, right? So uh, benign means that this is a normal user behavior. They just change. Uh, so these kind of change affect your model because if you don't adapt your model on the fly with the data, then you can easily flag some good people as attacker because their behavior changes. Um, so uh, you're absolutely right, right? Human is the harder part because, you know, uh, you know, compared to algorithm that is, you know, uh, taking actions based on scripts and programs, uh, you know, humans definitely more unpredictable. Let me throw another set of humans into the mix then. And um, as uh, the title of my podcast really procro- proclaims scholarly communication, I'm very much interested in the communication side of research. And perhaps as a segue into that, the other humans I have in mind are the community of researchers in security or ML and um, how it is that their practice, their publishing, um, their way of thinking or valuing research um, is really one of the factors as to how the research advances and in which direction it heads. So perhaps as an initial sort of question in that direction, how, how would you describe or define the community of researchers who are advancing knowledge in your areas of computer science and, and ML? Perhaps, for example, what is it that they most care to know next or what would they be considering successes um, in in their area? Um, So this is a very good set of questions, right? So uh, to start with the first one, uh, I think uh, in your introduction, you mentioned about the role of writing 
And I completely agree. Um, so people do their work, right? People solve problems and people find new knowledge. And all of this is communicated through writing one way or another, right? So either through papers, presentation, I, I can even think presentation as a form of writing, but deliver, you know, delivered uh, verbally. Um, so I think those kind of, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, way of communication is very important because that's where you find out other people's work. You can build on top of other people's work. Uh, and uh, in computer science and in computer security and even machine learning in general, one uh, observation we might have is that the frequency of communication is really high at this point, right? So there are papers published all the time, uh, their paper come out even before they were peer reviewed on archives. Uh, you can preview some of the work even before they were fully published. And uh, this has become a norm, right? So the community is moving very fast. This is a fast moving field. And now uh, that's why the communication is super, super important uh, to uh, you know share your work and you know, know other people's work. Um, in terms of, you know, what makes people, you know, considered, you know, a successful communicator, right? So what, what, what we think it is, uh, you know, people did good work. Um, uh, so there's so many criteria, right? So uh, the community has been always emphasizing impact. Uh, so impact can be defined by so many ways. Uh, so for example, a work that come out that, completely change everybody think about this problem and everybody stop doing one thing and start doing another thing, right? You can think of that a major impact because these changes how a community think about the problem and change or adapt their research directions. Now, high impact work can also go, uh, you know, hand, uh, hand in hand with the practical impact. So for example, if you build a, you know, framework, uh, you build a system that is, adopted by all the companies in the world that start to protect people uh, all around the globe. Now that's high impact, right? So we we look at, uh, you know, uh, you know, good research, look at their impact and, but, you know, impact is measured by all different kinds of ways. Definitely. Yeah. And to pick up your first point there about the frequency of the communication, the use of archive of things being available and being read perhaps before they've even completed the peer review process. Um, one of the interesting things, again, uh, there's so many unique things about the area of computer science and then also uh, security and, and ML in it is the way that conferences are used um, as the primary venue for um, communication and other fields such as uh, biology or, or chemistry, the, the journal kind of stands in for that particular um, venue. And in other words, you don't have people being dependent upon a singular event during the year where people congregate and presentations are held. You have just sort of a rolling rotation of, of, of journal articles being published. So it's a sort of a different um, way of, of communicating with each other, I suppose, in, in the area of computer science. And and when you say this high frequency, I, I would be interested to hear also then your uh, opinion on certain changes also that have been occurring recently in, in the conference um, rotation along the lines of 
multiple deadlines being set up at some of the larger uh, conferences, or also the idea that uh, when some papers are when when papers are rejected, that they are barred for submission uh, for a given period, perhaps a year, for example. Um, decisions like this, uh, structures like this, of course, are incorporating themselves into the frequency in the way that uh, the frequency of the publication of the frequency of the communication in the way that people are uh, keeping in touch with each other, aren't they? Um, yeah, so that's, uh, that's a really good point. Um, I think the uh, you're absolutely right that, you know, computer science in general, uh, and computer security and machine learning included, uh, we published in conference way more than journals. Um, I think part of the reason is uh, is it just the community norm, right? At the end of the day, the community decide you know where we publish our work and where we find other people's work. Uh, computer science just end up with conferences. Now, uh, as you mentioned, right? So our conference paper are uh, our conference papers are quite different from conference papers in other field. Uh, so they are not just short preliminary works. Uh, conference papers are very long, very extensive, self-contained, complete work. That's often the case. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, in fact, as you also mentioned, that uh, conference today, uh, in at, at least in my field, uh, in computer security, uh, getting more and more similar to journals. Right. Um, so uh, there are recent changes in the in the in the past few years where uh, you know all the major security conferences uh, now have a revision process. Uh, so when people submit a work, instead of rejecting the work right away uh, uh, or accept it right away, uh, there are a process where the committee work together with the authors, maybe through one or multiple rounds to revise the work and improve the work to the point of ready for publication. Uh, This is a very journal style. Uh, Also, uh, you know, in the past, uh, you know, a conference is usually annual thing. There's one deadline every year and you submit uh, before that particular deadline. Uh, Now, all the security conferences have you know, multiple deadlines across the year. And we have, you know, four top security conferences. And, you know, if you kind of spread those deadlines across the year, you have deadlines almost every month or two months. So you could submit the work whenever it is ready instead of, you know, schedule the submission, you know, uh, to a particular point of the year. Uh, This is also kind of, you know, you know, try to uh, learn from the, you know, successful experiences of a journal uh, instead of, you know, having people rush through the publication, uh, you know, a submission uh, at a given time of the year, people can just submit to the work whenever the work is ready. Uh, so that's kind of uh, the, uh, you know, lessons we learned, uh, you know, uh, over the you know, past decade and to try to adapt and to try to make the community better. Yeah, one of the the questions that occurs to me as a follow up to what you've just said, and also this perhaps slow shift over to a more journal type uh, publishing, is whether or not that might affect uh, authors, researchers, practice. Um, if you have in mind that you're going to be given a longer review process, what, what would that mean then for your view as to the initial submission of the manuscript? Would you be sort of 
passing it in as a sort of high level, uh, a highly advanced draft and worry about the polish after it's gone through the necessary changes of review? Or would you be viewing it then as I have to get through this gateway and it has to be absolutely my best um, when it's submitted and review is something we'll just think about after the fact? Um, this is a very difficult question uh, to answer, right? So I, I have my own uh, practices, uh, and it's hard to assess what other people are thinking about this process. It would be interesting to uh, to learn more about how other people are uh, thinking about their own strategies. My own strategy has remained the same, which is I submit a work when I feel it is ready, ready. Um, uh, one of the reason is, you know, I, I think, you know, now reflecting on the uh, mechanism of the conference is that um, uh, there's still a rejection pile uh, of the conference, right? So, you know, when you submit a work, you have multiple possible decisions. Could it be a rejection? It could be a major revision? Could it be a minor revision? Could it be accepted? Uh, so there's still a rejection pile. And for the rejected paper, the typical policy is that you cannot submit within the next two submission rounds, uh, which is sort of force you to go back and you know revise the work really uh, significantly before you can submit to the same conference again. Um, I think that's kind of the mechanism there. Try to try to discourage people to just sending anything that is uh, roughly there to the conference. Just hopefully it can pass the bar, right? So still, I think you know it's important to submit a work that is ready and it is polished uh, to the pipeline. So that's my own practice. Is that uh, I don't think this revision uh, mechanism changed my own way of. Uh, decide what kind of work is ready to submit. Uh, my, you know, my, you know, my group has the same bar before and after the same. The change is that we submit the work that we think it is truly ready, and uh, you know, uh, and then if we go through revision, uh, you know, we are going to continue improve the work. Uh, if we get accepted, that's great. Uh, if we get rejected, we got rejected. So, but I think that's usually a. Uh, uh, you know, a good practice. Uh, so once the work is passing our own bar, it does not get rejected that many. Uh, so I think that's a kind of quality control on our own side. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I see. I see. Maybe also to to zoom in on some of the issues that might be involved with what that polish looks like. Um, I, I, when people start talking about writing in science, they 
typically, and by people, I mean somebody who wants to provide services to scientists or scientists themselves. So everyone, really. Mm. <laughs> um, they, 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 they typically have in mind one sort of writing. And, and my experience that has been that it's, it's, it's much more important to be dealing with another sort of writing. Let me explain. If you call one sort of writing poor writing, then you might call another sort of writing sloppy writing. Okay, sloppy writing mm. would involve things like the proofreading or the sentence structure, or perhaps even questions of English grammar or word choice. Right. So there's something seriously, seriously off in one of these areas. But the poor writing, on the other hand, involves clarity of message or the structure of the argumentation or a broad understanding of the field combined with a sharp understanding of one's own hypothesis in a particular in a particular study. So what I'm trying to say is that it's quite possible, I think, and this is really my question to you, to have the sort of sloppy writing maybe in a paper and in an initial sort of submission where, however, you have very straightforward, strong science being presented in the argumentation and structure and the organization of the paper. And that comes through. So basically, you might have something that's not such a nice read, but it makes its point clearly. Hmm. That's, that's actually a very uh, interesting way to structure this two different type of, you know, writing issues. Um, in my own experience, I think I definitely seen uh, I, I have definitely seen both type of writing during the review process, um, and um, if the author managed to um, uh, manage to deliver the argument very clearly, there's a higher chance that they don't have sloppy writing problem. I, the, the the way I see it is that you know. Uh, sloppy writing is a problem that is easy to correct, right? So any good writers pay some attention to the typos and the grammars and they, they can clear this out. The poor writing problem is a much harder problem to address. Uh, so in another word, in order to present your argument clearly, cohesively, uh, writing to the point, uh, writing with cohesive logic, that's a much harder task. And usually if a paper address the uh, the the this part and then the grammar of uh, the sloppy part usually goes away. Uh, I think there's some correlation that if you do, you know, the uh, the actual writing well, uh, you know, the other aspects usually get cleaned up pretty well. Uh, however, if you know uh, you, if you can't write clearly uh, to begin with, uh, then that's a much bigger problem because it is difficult for the reviewers and for the readers to get your point, to appreciate your ideas. That's that's really well put. And and I would agree. I think that the, you know, the sort of sloppy writing is going to take be taken care of when, you know, the poor writing is out of the way. You know, it's good. Mm. It's solid in a sense. And, and, that, and that was kind of, uh, I didn't make it uh, as eloquent as I might have liked, but that is kind of the, the point that I see very many uh, scientists or even more uh, people who are trying to assist scientists focusing on is the sloppy end, the sentences, maybe questions of grammar where you might end up with a well-written paper that doesn't actually convey its message clearly or hasn't logically put all of its pieces together in the right order that you might need them. And, and I feel that that is where, you know, this, let's say, other level 
is where the attention of of, of science writers uh, perhaps needs to go, and especially people who want to provide them services. Absolutely, absolutely, and、uh, I think this issue is pretty common in younger students, right? So we train our students on. All kinds of skill sets and writing is definitely a very very important part of it.、Uh, me personally, when I was a student, I took you know technical writing classes twice、uh, during the PhD program.、Uh, it was a class that offered by、uh, you know uh, people uh, from instructors from the linguistic department who. Understand computer science,、uh, you know, which is kind of rare combination.、Uh, so I still kind of appreciate uh, uh, my instructor uh, uh, until today because that's where I learned how to write concisely and logically、uh, and to make an argument.、Um, so I, I think you're absolutely right, right? So this this is something that we didn't teach our students enough, which is. How do you make arguments,、uh, and how do you you make arguments through writing?、Uh, now, I, I personally, you know, view writing as a very useful process to polish your own thinking. Now,、uh, when we were writing a paper,、uh, until we actually put things in writing,、uh, we won't find certain little, you know, kind of flaws in the design. You know, missing arguments and missing experiments. That happens quite often, right? So by the time we put things in writing, we suddenly realize something's missing. Because when you write something, when you try to make a complete argument, that's where you start thinking very, very critically, and that's where you usually find something's missing, right? So that's why you know when we were working on a project, it's quite often that we start the writing process. Very early in the project period,、uh, you know, in the very beginning, we write something very simple,、uh, try to lay out all the arguments and why this project is worthwhile.、Uh, in the middle of the projects, we start the writing by documenting all the methodologies and experiment setups and everything,、uh, just as a way to criticize, you know, to try to just self-criticize, to self-check our, you know, thinking process. That is something that I have、uh, used myself in assisting、uh, scientists writing, and and that is the idea that writing is a tool or a method in the research. And you've just beautifully illustrated us, <laughs> illustrated that for us.、Um, what I would call what you're doing is many different things: writing to think, writing to check, writing to organize, and so on. Whereas most people, and this gets us back to that idea of the scientists themselves or People who are trying to assist them will think merely of the writing to communicate, which is the end product, right? It's the、mm. it's at at the end of the line. But you're making very clearly the case that if that's when you start writing, you, you may end up with a project that's just full of holes.、Mm. That is that is very true, right? So,、um, you know, when we start a project, as I mentioned, right? So. Uh, you know, within the team, we usually write something, even even just bullet points, and try to、uh, constantly remind ourselves, you know,、so、what's the motivation of doing this? What's the high level research question we're trying to address?、Um, do we find enough evidence, or you know, about the feasibility of this idea? Right? We keep documenting those arguments, those points, those evidence, the references. And、uh, throughout the process, right, this is a kind of a, you know a, a way for us to think critically. Now, 
when we design some kind of methodology or system design, uh, usually it is worth the time uh, to spend a day or two just to write it down. Write it down as if this is a kind of section in your paper, you know, uh, to uh, to think, oh, do we miss anything, right? So if we try to write this paragraph to convince people this is a good idea, uh, do we need something extra? Uh, it's definitely a very effective tool to help us think and you know uh, make plans, make research plans uh, for the next step. Now, the, the additional bonus or benefits of, of this practice uh, that we found is that is actually creates a lot of materials for your final product, uh, right? So by the time you are ready to write the actual research papers, uh, you know, all the notes, all the paragraphs, all the, you know, references you found is already like five, six pages long. Uh, and, you know, uh, you know, we have all, you know, doing writing in our you know, own experience, right? So the tough part is, you have a blank page with nothing on it, and you try to put together a perfect draft on the first try. That's very, very hard. Uh, however, if you already have a lot of uh, sort of a semi-organized thoughts on the draft, you already have you know four or five pages of content, right? Reorganizing these thoughts into narratives, uh, into a uh, cohesive chain of logic, uh, logical arguments is much easier. Right, you have something to work with. Um, so my my personal style is is you know go through multiple iterations of writing before I have a you know satisfying draft. Uh, I know people who can you know write a perfect paragraph on the first try, but it's just not me. <laughs> I, if you know them, please give me the number because <laughs> I, they, they, they are the rare sort, aren't they? Yes. <laughs> what, what you're describing here, though, is obviously going to involve a sort of horizon, a temporal horizon, a time frame that's going to demand that... Um, well, I can imagine one of two possibilities. Either you're sort of consistently churning over results and experiments and thoughts about the um, research in some written form, or you get a handle on your deadlines well in advance and work up towards them. Uh, I'm imagining, though, probably your practice is closer to the first, the consistent approach. Yeah, so uh, this is a you know my personal style when I was a student, and this is kind of the uh, practice I recommend to my students. Again, you know, each students have their own twist of that uh, that that procedure. Uh, but what we generally find as helpful is to you know uh, uh, consistently put something into the paper in writing. Uh, you know, as a small module, as a small section, a small subsection, uh, although it is not fully polished, right? It could be a sequence of bullet points and, you know, that's fine. Uh, at the end of the day, right, by the time we started drafting the final paper, uh, it just makes things so much easier uh, to operate. Um, uh, you know, there are students who try to do the opposite, right? Just, you know, uh, postpone the writing part and try to pull everything together in the last minute. Uh, usually, as as you previously mentioned, you find you find all kinds of holes in that process, and you know end up into a, you know less strong submission. Uh, so we definitely do the first option more often. 
Yeah, I could imagine that one of the more challenging areas there, I mean, people would immediately think, oh, but the, you know, the last minute, leaving it to the last minute, it's going, you're going to end up with a, an introduction that just doesn't sound nice. I would imagine the bigger problems are going to show up in, in areas like the evaluation section, where, um, I mean, in any science, and computer science is no different here, experiments that were conducted are never presented in the form or in the order or even in the consequence that they in the paper that they were conducted. So it's not like you're just recording reality. You're recording a logic to what you think the results mean. And the results is another case. Uh, the results, many are left out. Some just don't matter. And, and if you're pushing everything off to the end, uh, making those decisions, I think, is going to be extremely difficult to, to, to do. That is true, right? So, um, and the process of you know uh, you know doing research uh, and is different from the process of presenting the results, right? Uh, as as you said, um, when you present the results, uh, it's more of try to put together a story, uh, a uh, a uh, a sequence of arguments that is easy for the reader to get to the point, right? So it is easy for the reader to understand why we make the high-level arguments the way we make. Uh, so the experiments need to be reorganized. The, the, the arguments need to be made around those results uh, to support the higher-level arguments. Uh, so they, they are not necessarily the order how you conduct the experiments. It's definitely, uh, you know, uh, as, as uh, also the, the, the number of experiments that is eventually presented is probably a small subset of all the experiments that is conducted, right? Some of the experiments just doesn't work, right? Sometimes we also report those kind of negative results, but, you know, proportionally, right? So they were, they are not the major part of the paper. Um, so uh, going back to your, uh, you know, early points of, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, kind of organizing, uh, organizing uh, the introduction, right? So we, we write the introduction usually in the very end to really, you know, polish the writing and polish the arguments based off experimental results. Uh, however, uh, so the, the sketch of the introduction uh, is usually gradually formulated, uh, sort of formed uh, in the, in, during the course of the projects, right? So we, we kind of have a set of research questions we want to answer. We have a clear motivation of why this project needs to be done. Uh, so those kind of things you can usually you know, kind of directly use those kind of arguments when you start the projects. But in terms of how do you kind of, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, describe the findings in terms of describing, uh, you know, the answers to those research questions, and those needs to be you sort of uh, finalized in the last minute, that's still true, uh, that the introduction won't be ready until uh, the paper is ready. Right, right. Which is obviously the weird thing that people think. Yeah, well, that's where I started reading. But <laughs> many people who have who have thought about uh, uh, style in writing have often made the point that the writer's experience of a text and the reader's experience of a text are two entirely different things. Anyway, mm. so um, um, one one last point on your writing practice, which I think will interest uh, very many listeners is, um, again, this use of it as a tool. And I know that uh, you've given us a very nice picture of how it works alongside the entire development of the project. But I'm, I'm quite interested also in, let's say, the moment of inception, 
the mm. moment where what emerges out of your just general researching work is something that gives you the feeling, aha, here is paper material. Mm. How is it that that sort of thing shows up for you? Um, and and does, does writing or perhaps other sort of communication, perhaps discussion and so on, play any particular role there? What would you, could you put your finger on anything that, that helps you in that regard to notice that valuable result? Um, yeah, so I think the, um, uh, for a lot of the projects, we all have these moments of, you know, aha, this is it, right? So you, you found something, you found something exciting that you wanted to communicate with other people. Uh, now that's where you found, oh, yeah, maybe we can write a paper about it. Um, so I, I think uh, uh, it, the process usually, you know, uh, that moment usually happens, uh, you know, either early on or in the early phase of the project, because, you know, when we kind of start a project, right, we start with something that we think it is exciting, we think it is new, we think it is, you know, uh, innovative. Uh, however, many cases, these ideas may not work, right? Um, so our own kind of a philosophy is that if we wanted to fail, we wanted to fail fast, uh, which means that in the early phase of the projects, so we usually do a lot of you know, high risk, you know, high reward exploration kind of thing, try to push the boundary of the idea and, until we found, okay, it's not a possible, right? It can't, it can't be done. Or, oh, this idea is just blank, you know, you know, frankly, the idea is wrong, right? So there's no point of to keep doing it. We want to, you know, kind of speed up that process of failing if this project were to fail. Uh, however, once we pass the early exploration phase, right, when we get through that, uh, we feel that, oh, okay, so this is doable. This is some hope. Uh, there's some kind of possibility that we can lead to some kind of the results. Uh, now that's where we start to put more, you know, focused efforts uh, to, you know, organize the resources in terms of students, you know, collaborators, or even just computing resources and data sets, uh, try to put together uh, to deliver a strong results. Um, so, uh, you know, in terms of how, you know, uh, the different tools and, you know, including writing, uh, you know, play through, uh, I think, uh, a lot of these are just, you know, you know, my students, my collaborators, and we work together, uh, you know, through a series of uh, communications. Uh, so often communications either through, uh, you know, some kind of a short, you know, bullet points exchange or some kind of a very simple presentation, you know, PowerPoints uh, where uh, we lay out all the arguments, we lay out the initial results, and we have a collaborative discussion. Uh, so uh, that's why, you know, I briefly mentioned that I often think that, you know, sort of, you know, even informal presentation, those kind of three, four, five slides, you know, 15 minutes presentation is a form of writing because when you put together the slides, when you try to deliver the slides within a small team, uh, it, it's kind of force you to think critically and force you to put to the right bullet points and organize the results that is, you know, easy to understand for the team. Uh, so I think that's also another very good, you know, uh, very good practice for students uh, to communicate. Yeah, I, I also very much agree with your view on on what writing is. Um, speech is generally has this spontaneous component to it. And what you're describing, these presentations is, you know, carefully crafted, deliver, 
delivery of something that you know you've you've put quite a lot of thought into. So if it, if there's interpretation that has shaped down to you know sentence level moves of what it is that you're saying, essentially you're dealing with a sort of written object, aren't you? I mean, that's yeah. I think that's what you're driving it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you've given us a wonderful view of your own practice. You've given us also a very clear illustration of how this works out at the group level. I'd like to maybe zoom way out once briefly and and talk again about the community of um, ML researchers and security researchers, and maybe come back to this this question of venues and and if I might even talk about subcommunities, because if we look across maybe the ten to twenty conferences that you know, show up at the top tier levels, as they're often called, we end up with a picture of computer security that um, it could be one of two things. And this is really the question I have for you. (laughs) It Mm. could be that it's a, a bit of a homogenous set of venues that have different levels of prestige. And therefore, that is the motivating factor to send the manuscript to one or the other place. Or it could be that there's a number of sub-communities. There's places where a project sits better, even if perhaps that means stepping down a tier because you feel that I'm speaking to this sub-community, so I want that they also get it in their conference and so on. So I suppose the, the question is, is how, how would you, in, in broad brushstrokes, map the uh, computer security community, maybe even according to venue, and, and how would that affect your or, or other research? Churches whom you know uh, uh, practice of, of submission and, de- and decision making on, on on which venue to go with. Yeah, this is a good question. Uh, so this is a question you know uh, my students and I often uh, discuss quite a lot uh, in terms of where we submit our papers to. Right. Um, so there are uh, you know uh, as I mentioned a few. Uh, highly prestigious, uh, you know, security conferences that we submit, you know, uh, frequently to. Now, the, the the nice thing about those conferences is they, they are pretty broad, uh, so they generally cover the subtopics in computer security uh, and privacy. Uh, so they cover everything from you know applied crypto to networking security to uh, system security to uh, you know even uh, you know. Uh, HCI user usable security, right? So they are very broad. Uh, they cover a lot of the topics, and usually, uh, you know, our papers fit in those broader topics. Now, uh, there are specialized conferences where sometimes, you know, if we wanted to uh, have the work uh, reach that particular audience, uh, we also submit it to those, you know, conferences. So, for example, a good example is. Uh, Pats, uh, which is a conference uh, and, and a journal, uh, special, uh, especially uh, focused on privacy specifically, right? So uh, that conference does not touch on security that much, but primarily uh, privacy related. Uh, so, you know, if we have a work that is just, you know, pure privacy and we wanted to reach to this, you know, audience and through this venue reach to people who are interested in privacy, uh, and that's where we're going to submit to. Um, so it, it is a, a combination of both, right? So we're thinking about if this venue is reputable, if we publish there, uh, does, that, does that help us to reach a broader audience uh, versus if this is a specialized community that 
really help to you know uh, you know sort of ad- advertise our work. Uh, that's our consideration. I'm very interested in what you continually refer to when you're talking about your students or the people in your group, um, because one of the major interests of this podcast is education, mm-hmm. um, services or assistance to um, science scientists in communication is really a branch of education. You mentioned, for instance, your wonderful experiences uh, with um, uh, linguists who understood computer uh, science and helping you um, when you were early career to understand what it is that you need to do uh, to communicate well. And and it's, it, it, it would appear to me that when you talk about your own uh, students or your own mentees that you're opening to them the view on science that includes entire communities and not merely just subject matter. I suppose maybe to make a question out of this, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, this education aspect, this education end, I mean, what would be, in your opinion, the things that master students and at the very latest doctoral students need to be doing, let's say, on a regular basis? What would be some of your practice with them so that they understood you know, the second half of science, as some people sometimes call it, you know, the fact that it's it's beyond your methodology, it's beyond your area of expertise in a field, it's also being able to make it clear what you think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, I think, as you mentioned, right, so as a PhD student, as a sort of a master's student, having your, you know, area of ex- expertise is very important. That's always number one, right? So build up uh, the expertise around a particular uh, topic or subject is 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 the uh, the number one criteria as a sort of PhD student. But on top of that, right, in order to be a uh, productive and a successful researcher, there, there are definitely more to it. Um, so what, you know, uh, we spend quite a bit of time training students on is uh, basically reading, writing, and speaking, right? Uh, and and communicating in general. Um, and at the end of the day, right, so uh, for computer science and computer security in particular, um, rarely people can be working alone completely and be successful, right? It's always teamwork, collaborative work, because the field by definition is interdisciplinary. Uh, Security covers so many different aspects uh, in order to uh, create a high impact of projects. uh, It's always good to work with other people who carry their special expertise and work together. Uh, Now, in order to do that, well, we needed to communicate effectively uh, uh, work with people who are coming from a different background, uh, writing effectively uh, to communicate the results. Uh, and of course, uh, there is a special skill set to read, right? To read effectively. Um, now, I, I can give you one example of uh, our students preparing for their conference talks. Uh, usually conference talks are uh, 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 very, uh, you know, a good opportunity to uh, one, uh, to, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, communicate their work and results to the community, but at the same time to present yourself uh, to the community so people so get to know you uh, as you uh, and to put a face on the paper, right? Uh, so the students usually take, uh, you know, a month just to prepare this uh, 15 minutes talk. Uh, you know, we, uh, we go through multiple rounds of their slides 
uh, and we do multiple rehearsal talks, then we kind of try to help the students to um, to um, practice their pacing, uh, to uh, you practice their transitions, practice their jokes, um, and uh, really kind of think about uh, how we kind of deliver the message effectively. And I will spend quite a, f- a lot of times on what to say, how do you present a particular example so that it's easy to understand. Uh, think a lot about the audience, right? So, you know, in conference settings, you have one set of audience. If the students get invited to give a presentation to another, you know, uh, you know, another, uh, you know, workshop or forums or uh, a gathering, uh, you have different set of audience, then the talk needs to be adjusted accordingly. So we spend quite a lot of time with the students practicing those kind of skill sets. Um, and at end of the day, right? So I think uh, having that skill sets, uh, you know, help the long-term career development of the students, uh, you know, uh, you know, so for example, if the student decided to you know, switch the topic or focus a little bit on those uh, research skills, those kind of communication, writing, speaking skills would carry over and, you know, help the students to, to adapt. That's wonderful. That, that 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 makes that point very clear, and uh, you have very lucky students. Um, <laughs> that's, that, that's that's great. I wonder if um, to sort of close out, uh, there there might not be something that, uh, let's say, on a slightly higher level, that you could send out as any sort of a message to any of the stakeholders in the area of computer security when it comes to the publication and the communication end of the research. Um, I'm thinking of early career research or authors of any kind, um, the chairs or reviewers at uh, venues, um, perhaps even the organizers of venues. I mean, if, if there was any one of these groups whom you could, you know, let's say, stand briefly on a platform and, and, and speak to and say, look, we as researchers or the researcher research itself needs dot, dot, dot. <laughs> what, what, who might you uh, uh, pick out there and, and what might it be that you, you would want to tell them? So, yeah, so there's so many things um, I, I was hoping to talk about uh, to the, you know, sort of the review process, the TPCs, the, the, the you know, uh, commi- uh, technical program committees uh, in terms of the review process. Uh, I think one of the thing is, uh, not only authors need training in terms of writing good papers, I also think reviewers need training and a mentoring to write good, effective reviews. Uh, often cases that we thought, oh, reviewers, they are researchers, they know their work, and, you know, they could write good reviews, which is not true, right? So everything, you know, uh, needs practice, needs mentoring. Um, so I feel like that, uh, you know, sometimes when we write reviews, uh, you know, uh, we're not in the right mindset, right? So writing reviews on papers is not about, you know, putting the authors down, right? Try to destroy the paper, try to criticize, you know, uh, everything uh, to the extent that you got, you know, you reject the paper. Um, I think how to, you know, learning how to write constructive review is equally important. Uh, by that, what I mean is that, I always think about, you know, uh, reviewing process is like uh, a colleague of you who are sitting next door come to you to say, oh, I have a paper. Can you help me to review and give me some feedback? That's kind of the review process I'm thinking about, right? So you 
look at the paper, you say, oh, this is good. I like those. But these things seems problematic. And here's my thinking of how to fix it. Right. I, I think when writing reviews, uh, it's super, super important to point out a path to fix things. Right. So not just, oh, this is not good. This is not good. This is not good. Uh, everything is bad. Uh, it's more of finding the part that is fixable and help the authors to identify a, a path to, 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 to fix things. Uh, so going back to the high level, right? So I think, uh, you know, some of the conferences that already have the practice where uh, senior uh, reviewers, uh, PC members, uh, would go through some of the reviews and give feedbacks to each other. Uh, I think that's a very good practice. Uh, and but in general, I feel like the you know reviewers uh, needs to uh, be trained and mentored in order to write good reviews. Uh, I don't know how to execute this uh, in a in a practical manner, but I, in general, I feel like this is a need for the community to grow healthily. That's a wonderful point, and and it makes me think also of uh, what you're what you've emphasized a few times, which. I think very much gets overlooked the skill of reading. I mean, you've you've said that with your students. This is you know put up front the ability to read well, which, which I think is taken too much for granted, right? And I'm mm -hmm. going to imagine that very much so in the reviewing process. That's precisely what it is because. Oh, one of the major things for sure. I think your other point about don't do critique but do construction. Like you might be able to summarize it as right. Okay. Don't 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 tear it down, but figure out how it could get better. But but the point of really understanding the text. It's very often said that, well, so if a reviewer has misunderstood your message or mm. has summarized one of your points incorrectly, well, then you must have written it wrong. And there is some value to seeing that because it should be that a reviewer picks it up and really understands at least up to about 90% of what you meant. Okay. So there mm. is value to that, but, but it's also possible from what you're saying that it, it's already been written correctly, but the reviewer read it wrong. I mean, this is not, you know, we can't exclude that possibility. Mm. Um, yeah. So I think this is the, you know, this is a, uh, you know, uh, uh, both parts, right? So the authors need to write clearly uh, as much as they can and the reviewers uh, would pay attention. Uh, but in general, that's why you have multiple reviewers, right? If one reviewers didn't catch it and hopefully the other uh, three, four reviewers catch it, and then you know your points still get delivered. Uh, however, if all five reviewers miss that point, then it's very likely the author didn't make the point clear enough or accessible enough, right? Uh, I think having you know multiple uh, reviews to look at the same paper uh, is is still a kind of a safeguard uh, for for that problem. Well, thank you very much. And I think that's a wonderful request out to the community of people in English for academic purposes to think about as to how best to implement some program for reviewing so that people are um, more certain there of what it is that they're doing, better trained, um, for sure. Thank you uh, very much uh, for that, Gang. That is Gang Wang. Assistant Professor in the Department of Computer Science, University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is Goodbye from Me to Gang. Goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication.